kinds of things are making news this week. And then we're looking at two ways of looking at the family SUV, as in family size or super size. And then we're off to Geneva looking at cars which are silly expensive, but not necessarily silly, although practical is probably not a word you might use. In the week when Toyota announced a £240 million investment at its plant near Derby, and chip maker Intel purchased autonomous driving specialist Mobileye in a deal supposedly worth almost $15 billion. Yes, you can say that aloud one more time. In that kind of a week, Uber announced the cancellation of its self-drive test in Arizona after one of its fleet of Volvos rolled on its side after colliding with another vehicle when its human driver allegedly turned across its path. Meanwhile, a fleet of autonomously driven Nissan Leafs clocked up hundreds of incident-free miles in central London. Like Uber, they too had engineers in the driving seat in case they were needed. And in the wake of Donald Trump appointing an unapologetic climate change denier as head of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, comes the first sign of his inevitable clash with state authorities. Scott Pruitt has well-established links with the oil industry, says climate change is far from proven, and while he was Attorney General of Oklahoma, sued the EPA to try and prevent President Obama's clean power plan from becoming US law. Now the poacher has become the gamekeeper, it will be interesting to see if he changes opinions as easily as he changes jobs. The California Air Resources Board, which has led the way on emissions control regulations for so many decades that it was setting the national standards for the Obama administration, has said that it will press on with proposed reductions in emissions and greater requirement for all car makers to offer zero emissions products, which are now in doubt elsewhere in the country. In January, President Trump told a meeting of Detroit car makers that emissions control laws were out of control and then appointed the man leading the battle against the EPA as its new head. So that's put Pruitt up against California and he now plans to review that state's authority to impose its own emissions regulations. Although it covers a much wider range of factors, the headline story for all this in future weeks and months is likely to be the CAFE requirement for 50 MPG to be in place by 2025, which Detroit would like to see set aside. Just recently, we said the decision to sell Opel leaves GM without that stream of well-designed and well-made cars Opel has been providing to the USA in the past decade and more. But as cars become less significant in its home market, GM says the product and the platforms in place should carry it far into the future. A future where big trucks and big profits are all that matters. Haven't we heard this tune before?
Meanwhile, back at the ranch... Now that the Donald has put unbelievers in charge of the EPA and hinted that the upcoming cave rules could be softened, all America can rejoice and buy lots of really big trucks. And there are plenty to choose from. So many that a lot are unfamiliar to European drivers and the Chevy Tahoe's biggest rival is probably the similar, similar looking and similarly priced Chevy Suburban. But for all its longer wheelbase and a couple of thousand extra dollars on the price tag, it's still only a nine-seater. Only. Full size is an American euphemism for truly enormous, and of course we all know that the same applies to the profit margin on larger vehicles. And low oil prices, like we have right now, mean low petrol prices at the pumps, and that means high sales of big trucks. Which equals happiness, as Mr McCorber will tell you. Hence the disinterest in smaller vehicles and passenger cars, which got Detroit into trouble once before, and from which, some might argue, Chrysler never recovered, probably because it was a bit wobbly before all of that. Now GM has sold off Opel and more or less renounced cars. Profit margins on its US-made vehicles are around 10%, it says, and its best forecast saw European cars producing 2% in a few years and ultimately 6% in about 10 years' time. However, even the current level of sales is dependent on some serious incentives for almost all car makers, partly because that's how Americans buy everything from conflicts to Chevrolets. If there isn't a cashback or plus, 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 plus for the same price, they think they're being cheated. Dacia would struggle to sell cars in the USA no matter how cheap they were, unless there was a cashback element to the deal. So let's not worry about incentives too much, but think about the price of oil. Without going to war again, it's outside the control of governments who don't have an abundance of it. And if the price does go up, we know from previous experience that although Americans like big vehicles, they may have no choice but to downsize and just abandon their preference for things like this. Nine seats, for heaven's sake. It's almost big enough to need a special driving licence. But it's really not made this big in order to take the Cricket 11 on tour, is it? It's made this big so it can tow things. Boats, for example, or horse boxes. Maximum towing weights are top trumps in the feature list and are in part dependent on the size and weight of the towing vehicle. So if you have a fairly modest two-berth cabin cruiser or a more exciting sports boat, you need something like this to take it to water. And a pair of horses in a box will weigh about the same, so these are primarily functional vehicles, which in Europe would make them just a workhorse. Sorry. 
too big for everyday use in Europe. They fit in perfectly in the USA because everything in this country is built on the same scale, including all the roads, the car parks and the drive of your house. And the sticker price. 48 grand for the entry-level Tahoe, all the way to $66,000. Suburban goes as high as 69. And you can still go upmarket. Yukon is 50 to 70, broadly speaking, rather like the Ford Expedition. Or you could shop outside the USA and pay from 50 upwards for a Toyota or a Nissan or go the whole way and pay almost $95,000 for a Mercedes GLS. But that's only a seven-seater, and it can't tow as much. But 19 to the gallon is the key figure to remember about Tahoe, and that's the combined figure before you fill it with family, friends and luggage and pop the trailer on the back. Guess half that figure and you'll see why the price of oil has such an effect on the sales of these trucks. Meanwhile, in Europe, we'll carry on buying SUVs that are altogether smaller and more polite. And a lot of them will be like the Citroen DS7 Crossback we saw in Geneva and feature a petrol hybrid power plant and a raft of high-tech stuff that reflects the upmarket status Citroen is looking for as it seeks to distance the DS nameplate from the regular cooking models with a Citroen badge. Now then, a while ago, a good while ago, we said that so many car makers have hybrids in their range, they can no longer be thought of as distinguishing features or even noteworthy to any big degree. And indeed, the powertrain is the least significant feature of the DS7 Crossback. The big news is that it is so far removed from the cooking Citroëns that it isn't one. In order to be credible at a premium level, DS needed its own products, and this is the first of five new vehicles which will be unique to DS, even though this one rides an existing PSA platform. Everyone involved knows that you can't just invent a premium brand and expect it to be on level terms right away. PSA boss Carlos Tavares says that this is a 20-year project, and Xavier Savignol, the man in charge day-to-day, -day, says that it has to be different. We can't just copy our rivals, he acknowledged, even though this is a 30 grand SUV competing against things like the Range Rover Evoque, the Audi Q5, and the Mercedes GLC. It's all about the interior and the tech as far as DS is concerned, and all about making the driving experience different and French. And now, some of the silliest and smartest cars in Geneva. You decide. So which one of the two is this? Named after an orchid and designed by an electronics firm in Singapore. Hard to believe it's typical of anything, really, but Geneva is increasingly packed with low-volume, high-price specials, and together they tell an interesting story. When Porsche unveiled a Panamera estate car in Geneva, we said we'd never show it again on Auto Mondial, and we're not about to. But we're mentioning it 
because Porsche is the most profitable car company in the world and makes an average £14,000 on every car it sells. And the SUVs are leading that charge. But think about the figure. 14,000 on each car means if you sell 100, you've made 1.4 million pounds. And you're bound to sell 100 of anything if you're Porsche. Or Lamborghini, or Ferrari, or almost anyone with a modest production line. Or if you're a low volume maker like Singapore-based Vanda Electronics and you've done a deal with Williams Advanced Engineering to produce a 200 mile an hour hypercar and then you can charge more than a million pounds for it and start making a profit at a much lower volume. That's the theory anyway, and the existence of the roller skate chassis platform with a battery pack and electronic motors, which Tesla promised to make available a couple of years ago. That means we might see a lot more small companies who are able to bring their vision to market than, well, not more than ever before, because that's how it always used to be done way back when, but more than in the last 60 or 70 years anyway. Or you could pay millions for something hand-built by Williams, which sounds like a deal to us. The Artega Scala is a fraction of that price, but it's not handmade by Williams and it doesn't do 200 miles an hour. But it's not short of performance when viewed from a more conventional standpoint. 400 horsepower in a two-seater the size of a baby Mazda with a reasonably low weight as well means it can swoop off to 60 in three and a half seconds. Electric motors always have a dramatic power delivery like that. And it's limited to 155 miles an hour if you want a bit of range, although it can reach 186, apparently. 300 miles on a full charge, as long as you don't charge about the place. Some useful provision for fast charging. A get-you-home top-up. But all of this range versus performance and weather is still a bit too theoretical for us. And most others, it seems. It's nice inside and all, and why not? Because Artega, though reasonably unsuccessful as a niche manufacturer of conventional sports cars, is no newcomer to the posh and plush end of the market, having tried and fallen from grace before. There are many who feel that swapping combustion engines for batteries and leckies probably won't make it any more successful, especially when it costs more than a BMW i8 or a Tesla, and by some margin too. It's a spit shy of $200,000 and production is in any case limited to a maximum of 50 cars and for us that drops it between a rock and a hard place. Even at Porsche profit margins, that's half the number you need to make a comfy little profit for the year and the only way to make a living at this would be to double the price. It's been designed by Touring Superleggera, so it should have a swanky enough pedigree to justify the kind of swanky price we think it will need if it's going to prosper. And speaking of swanky pedigrees, what about having a car designed by Pininfarina to a brief written and overseen by a double winner of the Indy 500, who is also a previous Formula One world champion? Emerson Fittipaldi raced when 
the only driver aids were between your ears and between... Well, yes, enough of that. He's long wanted to build a car that was capable of providing the thrill of a genuine race car, but was reliable, cost-conscious and mainly accessible to drivers who, by definition, are not up to world championship ability. And this is it. EF7, that's the number of children he has, is a big V8 sports car with massive power, of course, but it's also built to full FIA spec to be as safe as possible. It's only intended for track day use, and the real selling point is that if you're one of the few who can afford one, and you can get hold one of the 39 production models, you also get a tuition day with the great man himself, who will doubtless remind you that he won 39 Grand Prix races at the same time as he shows you how to handle this car properly. I designed the car, the concept for gentleman driver, people who want to enjoy driving a normal aspirated car, there's no surprise, you can drive with the throttle, with the steering wheel and control and feel the car extension of your body, because then you, you get the maximum feel of driving. And that's what I'm looking for, the people to really enjoy a car on the track. And then one day, why not on the street? But here's another thing that's clever about this deal. The EF7 is going to be a fully playable car in Gran Turismo, which means that you can brush up on your technique long before you lay hands on the real thing and long before you show yourself up sitting next to Fittipaldi himself. In fact, there's a proper ladder of progression in driver training, which means not everyone will be deemed good enough to show Emerson just how far behind professional status their driving really is. A lot of us would feel a lot happier with that comforting thought in mind, though we suspect that few people who can spend the million-plus dollars this will cost have a very low threshold of embarrassment. And to illustrate our point about the profitability of low-volume, high-value production, the word is that this car is the first of a series of models to come from the new brand, which also includes 8WA among its partners. That, named for the co-founder of AMG and boss of the eponymous company, which builds their DTM cars. So they know a thing or two. And although this building of one-off or ten-off specials or even a hundred or so has its roots in the very beginnings of the auto industry, in a more recent past you can see its beginnings in the specialist tuning companies, some of which have become part of the companies they serviced, and AMG of course is the classic example of that. But it was hardly alone, especially not in Germany, and there were dozens more, far too many to be included here, leaving us to pick out the Gembala Avalanche for special attention, not least because you couldn't walk past the thing in the show without shading your eyes. Although there's a fairly intimidating body kit underneath that would be eye-catching in any colour, the metallic bluey purpley colour chosen for the show is entirely in keeping with the character of this car. It's aimed at people who find the regular 911 Turbo S just a little bit bland. We know what they mean. Some days, 540 horsepower just isn't enough, is it? And a chap needs more like, well, let's say 809 of the things. 
The regular air gets to 60 in 2.6 seconds, and quite frankly, we can't imagine that there are street legal and commercially available tyres that could do any better, especially not if you wanted to use them again. But it's all about the rest of the story, isn't it? And although Gambella officially defines it as a track car, the interior has more to do with the Promenade des Anglais than the Mistral Strait, 200 kilometres away from there. Although you could theoretically be there in about half an hour in this if you didn't have to keep stopping to talk to policemen. 400 thousand dollars puts you in the driving seat and you'll need about the same again every year to keep it on the road because you'll be paying all those fines everywhere you go if speed cameras can read your number plate at that speed we're back to our best behavior again next week more or less looking first at the new fiesta st unveiled in geneva a radical new departure in that it replaces the Aspro 1.64 with a Turbo 1.53. Same power, different delivery, and you choose between normal, sport and track. And then we join the throngs asking Wither, Cadillac and so on, because the must-have premium saloon that ruled the USA is no longer anything of the sort, and though the product probably compares better with foreign rivals than it ever has before, it seems to have lost the attention of the American consumer. And in a crowded segment, Mazda's CX-5 seems to have grabbed that attention with ease, thanks to good looks and a cheery blend of practical usability and sports car-derived drivability. Is that the key to success amid a full field of very accomplished rivals, or does it need to offer more?